This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. When Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff, co-founders of Honest Tea, set out to make a tea that they would want to drink, they knew they wanted to create a product that wasn't too sweet and build a brand that was socially responsible and environmentally friendly. But they had no idea what it would take to get the tea to market. Their new book, Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding, tells the story of their startup in a graphic novel format. Nailbuff is a professor at the Yale School of Management. Goldman, a graduate of the school, is one of his former students. Recently, Knowledge at Wharton had an opportunity to talk with Goldman and Nailbuff about how they created a financially sustainable company that serves a mission, how they navigated the beverage distribution challenges, why they decided to sell the company to Coca-Cola, and how they did it on their own terms. We're here today with Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff, the co-founders of Honest Tea, to talk about their new book, Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. Seth and Barry, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Thank you. So the simple answer to why you started the company and it's on all the bottles is that you were thirsty. And you talk in the book about how you wanted to create a beverage for people like you who thought most of what was already on the market was too sweet. But what was it about tea that kind of really captured your imaginations that kind of told you that this was the venture you wanted to pursue pursue as entrepreneurs? Tea is really one of the world's healthiest foods. It's full of antioxidants, flavonoids. It's interesting. It's culturally authentic. There's lots of different varieties. It's a truly gourmet experience, and great tea only costs a nickel a cup. So the question is, could we do for tea what Starbucks had done for coffee? And on top of that, this is Seth, on top of that, tea is produced in some of the poorest countries in the world and and consumed and enjoyed by some of the wealthiest. And so inherent in that means you have an opportunity to create wealth at the community level and communities that really need that opportunity, and you can do it in a way that isn't charity, but that is real, you know, driven by the market. And, and that means it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. And one of the major themes that I really saw running through the book was just the sheer number of variables that you had to think about when developing a project and then getting it on the shelves. I mean, you, on the one hand, you want to balance the wanting to be a socially responsible and environmentally friendly company. But on the other hand, you're dealing with customers and their tastes and also a distributor network. So tell me, I mean, how did you... What did you learn from actually trying to balance all of these things and trying to both, you know, serve the mission that you wanted to pursue but also be a financially sustainable company? A business would certainly be a whole lot easier if there weren't any customers or distributors you had to worry about. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the the, the funny thing was that we have a – our business plan actually is on our website at honesty.com, and um, it's a – what we were very, um, we had a lot of foresight in terms of what we wanted to create in terms of the brand. Uh, what we had almost uh, no uh, sight line to is what it would take in terms of distribution. And we learned very quickly that the beverage business is very dependent on distributors because the product is heavy, you can't ship it through the mail, and you certainly can't ship it through the Internet. So we needed uh, feet on the street and trucks on, you know, in warehouses and, and bottles and, you know, in warehouses and then to get off the shelf and to get in front of consumers and that there was a lot of uh, a lot of work and a lot of pain points along the way to get there right i mean even in the book it mentions how you were using charcoal distributors and corned beef distributors at points <laughs> because you couldn't get beverage people because they had in some cases exclusive contracts with other brands right 
yeah, it was just well, however we could get to the shelf. Um, and and the, the traditional beverage distributors really did not um, give us full consideration because our product wasn't as sweet as what they were carrying and was a little more expensive. Uh, and so it just wasn't something they were, you know, uh, they didn't think was going to work. Mm-hmm. And now one of the rules for the road that you mentioned at the end of the book is don't compromise on the big things, but compromise on everything else. But when you, I mean, when it's your company and you founded it and, I mean, you feel really personally connected to everything, I mean, how do you figure out which is which? I mean, can you give an example from the honesty story that kind of shows that? Here's a case where we compromise on a little thing. We like the idea of having labels that were front and back, just like you'd see in a wine bottle or a high-end vinegar. You get to see more of the product. It's absolutely beautiful. But the problem is that the machines that put on front and back labels are rare. That means the production line goes slower. Sometimes people put the wrong back label with the, right, with the front label. Uh, labels can be put upside down. They slip off in coolers. And so in the end of the day, even if we might like to have separate front and back labels, it really wasn't worth it. And so we went to a wraparound label. Not quite as elegant, but uh, a whole lot simpler, less expensive. Mm-hmm. And now is there, and can you give an example of sort of a big thing that is important, was important not to compromise on? So, well, for not compromising, you know, the, the idea that we would have wanted to have a less sweet drink. There was tremendous pressure in the marketplace to have a sweeter drink. This was uh, to the, to the um, those beverage distributors who, who didn't want to give us consideration. They said, look, or even some stores said, look, we'll take this product if you make it sweeter. But we just don't think the market's ready for that. And so the, the short-term opportunity would have been to make it sweeter. But we knew in the long term, in order to create something meaningful, we really needed to stick to that less sweet taste profile. Mm-hmm. And now can you kind of take us through the process of developing a new flavor of tea? I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the book, is just talking about sourcing and then kind of trying to get the formulation exactly right and naming even, to name it in such a way that customers will be attracted to it. Well, we had, I would say we had uh, some more and less successful uh, explorations there. So first of all, in terms of the R&D, tea is the world's second most popular beverage. It really is enjoyed by almost every culture. Uh, and so um, there was no shortage of tea varieties. Our challenge was to, number one, make the tea in a way that, first of all, could it taste good cold and could it taste good, uh, could we make a, a formulation that would be accessible to a large part of the population? And then could we make the packaging and the um, uh, flavor profile something that would attract people? And, and so there were um, certain, certain tea, teas, teas, like we had a peach oolong, which we um, took an oolong tea, and then we, put a, um, a, a, we got a, an image of Opus the Penguin from Bloom County, who, um, from one of our investors, uh, Berkeley Breathed, the, the, the comic book uh, designer, used that label. That one really worked. Then we had a product using um, a honeybush tea from South Africa. We named it after the community that sourced it, Harlem Honeybush, and we made it unsweetened. That one didn't work because people didn't know what honeybush was. They didn't know anything about this community. And, and the, the normal association with Harlem is they think Harlem, New York, and that's not a place where that evokes images of, of uh, you know, tea gardens. <laughs> so um we i would say we got to get a better feel for the market but it, it was it was a, it was a process 
And I'm honestly committed very early on to kind of producing products that were organic, that were fair trade, and also packaged in recyclable materials. Has fi- Have finding ingredients and materials that allow you to do that, did that get easier along the way? I mean, than it was when you started out just as that those things kind of became more popular, more of a trend among food and beverages in general? Exactly. They, uh, if we started out, there wasn't enough organic tea produced in the world to supply what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. And so... The good news is that the world has caught up in terms of consumers and producers to what consumers are demanding. And now there are also several stories in the book. It seems like wherever you guys went, you had a bottle of tea with you. <laughs> Still the case. Still the case. Because it just there's a bunch of stories in the book about how just being in the right place at the right time with a bottle of tea kind of ended up being a big win for the company. For example, when you got a bottle to Oprah. And then, I Barry, I also enjoyed the story where you took your daughter on a college tour and right. you kept stopping at Whole Foods to check on the tea displays. Uh, and, uh, and sure enough, there was one that the person interviewing her for college was drinking at the same time, which still is uh, remarkable. Um, I think this is a lesson that some entrepreneurs don't really get. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should have their product with them at every possible moment because you just never know who you're going to run into. And if the right opportunity is there and you don't have your prop, your your product, well, you're not going to get a second chance. And, and even more than that, just I I talk sometimes. So it's one thing when you you're opportunistic, but I've had entrepreneurs come in and talk to me about a food business they're trying to launch. And so the first question I'm going to ask them, well, how does it taste or what does it look like? And they'll say, oh, well, I don't have any samples with me. And <laughs> you know, there's that. Um, this isn't a, the nice thing about the food and beverage business is it's not theoretical. It is it, it needs it is tangible. You're selling a real product, so you've always got to be able to have that tangible product to show people. Mm-hmm. And now, what if, what were some of your most instructive failures when you were building the brand? Well, my colleague Sharon Osher says you learn more from your failures than your successes, and boy, there's a, a lot there. But I'd say the biggest is really uh, understanding what you're good at and not trying to do things which you don't have a passion for. So in our case, we really weren't great at running a bottling plant. And uh, although we had lots of good reasons to own one, in the end of the day, because it was a distraction, because it took away our time and our money, uh, boy, uh, it's not something we ever really should have owned. And in the end, when we sold it, we continued producing at the same bottling plant. It just wasn't our headache, and it wasn't our ownership, and it wasn't our losses. Right, because there's, I guess it sort of was a constant thing coming up in the book about every, it seemed like every 10 pages or five pages or so, there was some sort of problem at the bottling plant. (laughs) And we left out lots, too. (laughs) Now, you um, negotiated a deal in 2008 to give Coca-Cola a 40% stake in Honest Tea, and then the company became the full owner of the brand two years ago. How were you able to complete the deal and feel comfortable that kind of the core of Honest Tea would remain intact, that it would still be the brand that you meant to create when you founded it? Well, it was really important the way we structured the deal so that when Coke first invested, they were a minority investor. And that meant they had a seat at the table, but we were still uh, running the company. And they certainly helped us grow, but they also got to see how we, how we number one, how we worked together, and number two, how we you know, continued to build a, a brand. And so when Coke uh, had the chance to, to buy the company, they chose to exercise that option, but they also chose to keep the structure in place because it was working. And really, that same structure has stayed in place um, through uh, today. I don't think we did that with the uh, that intention in mind, in the sense of 
uh, we were having so much fun. We wanted to continue being in charge, growing the brand, and bringing it closer to $100 million. But the fact that we had control for three years uh, really allowed them to get comfortable with our style and how we were doing things, uh, as opposed to them coming in and being able to say, look, we're going to change everything today because this is how it, uh, it's done. Uh, they got to appreciate that, no, the way it's the status quo is just great. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, what would your advice be in terms of, I mean, one of the other things that came through in the book is, I mean, Coca-Cola wasn't the only kind of ma- major beverage competitor that you kind of encountered along the way. I mean, there were times where you had, I think there was somebody from Pepsi who was on your board for a while. You were also in discussions with Nestle at one point. I mean, it sort of showed that you can't really just remain in kind of this silo of being a small brand and not encounter these other people. I mean, what would your advice be for entrepreneurs in terms of, I mean, dealing with kind of the big, sort of the big major brands along the way and kind of considering different offers from them? Well, one thing is that these are, uh, it's a long process. And the fact is that it's a small world and people really want to know you, to appreciate what your capabilities are, know you as a person and know you as a brand. And so the fact that we had a long-time relationship with a Pepsi distributor, with investors from Danone and from Inventages meant that they got a sense of how we came about creating new products, uh, how we did in terms of meeting our financial projections, and therefore uh, they didn't have to start to get to know us in the process of a negotiation, which is really not the best time to get to know someone. So a lot of firms say the view, don't let them into the tent because they prefer, uh, a potential buyer would prefer to have uh, a mystery and uh, not see all your warts. But if, on the other hand, you don't have a whole lot of warts or your warts are okay, uh, then they'll have a lot more confidence. uh, And it's okay to let people know what you really like, what you really like. And there's a couple, I mean, there's a point in the book, Seth, where it shows, I guess, you responding to, I guess, an example of some of the emails you got when the company, when Honesty and Coca-Cola first began their relationship. I mean, how did you deal with kind of the backlash from drinkers of the tea who maybe had some reservations about Coca-Cola as a company? Well, um, we, we tried to have an open and honest dialogue. I did respond directly to a lot of people, but I also posted, you know, both a blog and, and certainly, you know, we put a video out on, on YouTube to talk about it. But ultimately, the, the best response was to continue to run our business the way we always had. And so people who express those concerns, you know, the thing we told them was keep an eye on us. And if you see us compromising around the, what, you know, we built this brand on, around organics, around fair trade, around, you know, lower calorie drinks, let us know. And that's where uh, they, you know, we, we've, I'd say, proven the skeptics wrong because, not only have we continued to make organic drinks, but we actually, when uh, before Coke invested, we weren't all fair trade, and t- today all of our teas are fair trade. So, you know, we've continued to, to um, move our product, I'd say, closer to the mission and the aspiration that we have. Mm-hmm. And where do you see um, the future growth for Honest Tea? I mean, over the course of the company's lifetime, you tried tea bags for a while. You've introduced a line of lemonade. There's also been um, a kid, kids' drinks. Yeah. Well, uh, certain innovations have worked and others haven't. An innovation like Honest Kids is, is just continuing to grow uh, very impressively. It's, it's still growing around 40% a year. Um, then uh, we launched also a line, Honest Fizz, this year, which is a zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda line. And that's gotten a very good reception. So um, it's clear that the Honest name is it's certainly not just about tea. It's, it's much bigger than that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also see opportunities beyond t- uh, beverages. There's other categories of food where uh, that could use, you know, I'd say could stand to be a little more honest. By that I mean a little bit less sugar, a little bit uh, more, you know, finding organic and authentic ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then, Barry, I understand that you have a new venture that you're working on? Absolutely. We at Honest Tea have this great product called Honest Kombucha, mm-hmm. which is a fermented tea. It's sold like gangbusters. I love the taste of it. But it turned out to be accidentally alcoholic. And as a result of that, we had to discontinue making the product. Mm-hmm. But there's a saying in software, when you have a bug turned into a feature, in this case, it's literally a bug, it's yeast. And so I started a new company to make mildly alcoholic kombucha called Kombrucha. And the motto is, get tickled, not pickled. And one of the last question, I guess the book is actually, it's not a traditional, uh, not a, in the traditional sense, it's, a, it's actually a graphic novel as opposed to being a traditional format business book. And Seth, you said in the book, I think, that this was inspired by graphic novels that you'd read with your kids. But what would you guys say, I mean, what did this format allow you to do that maybe you couldn't have done with kind of a traditional format business book? You know, our story has so many visual elements, whether it's the how we designed our labels, how we use our bottling plant, or where we source our tea from, these, these amazing tea gardens. But what's been so fun about the book is, is it's not just those elements that we've brought to, you know, to uh, made vivid uh, with through pictures. We actually illustrate how the equity structure works. And doing that in a uh, visual form actually helps clarify how it works. Um, and and uh, some of the conversations from Barry's classroom that use visuals about uh, how, how uh, the declining uh, marginal utility of sugar. Um, these are things that um, <laughs> most people wouldn't you know, expect to find in a, uh, a business book, but they really make the story come alive. And, and we've heard repeatedly from people who just are delighted to find, you know, not just that they've enjoyed a business book and actually read it to the, to the end, but their kids you know, sort of unsolicited, picked up the book and, and uh, got absorbed by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was a mention at the end that you had to work really hard to make sure there weren't too many scenes with just the two of you sitting at a conference room table. <laughs> That's always a challenge, right? Because there were obviously a lot of, you know, just conversations. But even then, our illustrator, Sung Young Choi, found creative ways to make uh, the story come alive, sort of picturing what was in our minds as we might say something. Mm-hmm. Seth and Barry, thanks so much for being with us today. Great to Thank be you with for you. The thanks for the chance to share. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.